Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Chet. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. John S. Huntington, a professor of history at Houston Community College. His research on American politics has been published in academic journals such as the Western Historical Quarterly and Radical Americas, and in popular outlets like Politico and the Washington Post. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Far Right Vanguard, The Radical Roots of Modern Conservatism, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021. This book traces the history of what Huntington calls the ultra-conservative movement, the creation of its national network, and the influence that this group had on politics in the second half of the 20th century. While this group was originally marginalized as radical outliers by mainstream political thinkers, by the end of the 20th century, ultra-conservative voices and ideologies moved into the mainstream. This movement, Huntington argues, laid the groundwork for the aggrieved, vitriolic conservatism of the 21st century. Dr. Huntington, welcome to New Books in the American South. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I wanted to start by offering my sincere congratulations on your book. Um, And as someone who also works at a community college, I know it can be really difficult uh, to stay focused on the scholarly endeavors while also teaching, you know, five, six classes. Uh, So I really just wanted to start out um, by asking you, how in the world did you carve out the time to both manage the teaching load and also get this fantastic book out? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, like I've got a really great support network. Uh, You know, my wife is also an academic. She's finishing her EDD this year. And so, you know, she helped just provide me time and space, you know, to to do my work. Um, You know, we also don't have any children. And so that is something, you know, that I think can, you know, can complicate people's lives as well. You know, but otherwise, the the way that I heard one of my old colleagues put it back in the day was that, you know, um, you just kind of grind when you have time. And, And often when I had time was night. And so I would finish, you know, teaching during the day and then I would just work on my book during the odd hours and then grew to kind of like the evening time, the night time as my working hours on, on, on writing and editing. So are you one of those people that just stays up until like three in the morning with like a little light on and just, just types and types and types and types? Quite literally. Yes. I used to be that. I, I can't stay up as late as I used to. I'm getting old now. I'm like <laughs> one of the geriatric millennials and uh, they, uh, but yeah, I used to be that. I have two lamps and that's all that's ever on in this room, you know? And so that, and that's all. So people thought you were just some some gamer staying up all night and like neglecting all of his duties. But in reality, you were just pounding away on a manuscript trying to that's get right. it out in whatever yeah, time that's you right. had just left. Just a writing hermit. <laughs> <laughs> a writing hermit. All right. Well, um, I... I was hoping you could maybe give us a little bit of background on where the ideas from the book came from, um, particularly what got you interested in political history and the ultra conservative movement specifically. Absolutely. And I, I love this question because I, I've always, I don't know if it's an old adage or an old saying, but you hear the saying that, you know, your first book is about your parents. <laughs> and for me, that's, that's in a way very true because so my family has always been kind of political, not like involved in politics, but just political conversations happened at the dinner table, you know, uh, and, and, and just throughout my life growing up, I heard politics rush. I was a, a kid that, and I was right in the backseat of, you know, the car with my dad and he, and Rush Limbaugh would be playing on the radio. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was introduced to political conservatism from a very young age. I was also raised in a very religious family an evangelical family carrying all the political weight of that word with it. And so when I went to school and started researching politics and in, in, in grad school, reading these books that other historians had written about conservatism, I always found it just not quite matching up with my lived experience as a child growing up in a conservative family, a teenager growing up in a conservative family. And so I was kind of like, well, where are the people who like, you know, I, I could see more identification with during my childhood. And that's not to say that my parents are far right necessarily, but more so just like the 
the anger of the Rush Limbaugh type conservative. I just didn't see reflected in like the books that prioritized people like Buckley, you mm-hmm. know, or, or Russell Kirk or any of these figures. Uh, it was always too, you know, um, the, the, my dad, I remember having a conversation with my father one time and he, and he was like, nobody read Buckley. That dude is an elitist, you know, and, <laughs> and that, and that was kind of where I was trying to get to is who were, okay. So if Buckley's an elitist and no one likes him, who, yeah. are, who are, who are other people listening to? And that was kind of the genesis of it was, you know, who, who is, who are the, the hardcore conservatives listening to? And then from there, uh, one of the books that was really influential for me, um, and I look up to her a great deal is Kim Phillips fine book, invisible hands, because in invisible hands, she traces this network of kind of libertarian free market thinkers and business owners and how they not only tried to squash unions, but tried to push this very conservative messaging economically. And I loved the way that she traces this network over time. And I very much tried to kind of uh, embody that with my own work, you know, tracing this network and how it got built and who sustained it and who was, you know, who the, who was doing the fundraising, who, who were the, the advertisers. Right. And I, cause I think all those pieces fit together to form like a mosaic that really illustrates what the broader conservative movement was, was, uh, being dominated by, or at sure. least like the Vanguard who was pushing it. Yeah. Uh, I think you brought up some really interesting points that I'd like to delve into in just a little bit, but, uh, when did you start writing this or when did you get into grad school and first start thinking uh, about these ideas? Sure. So I took kind of a circuitous route to, to grad school. I, so I went to Texas tech for my undergrad and then I got my master's at Texas tech, but weirdly I studied Russian history early on and took Russian language for a number of years. And then when I got into grad school, I kind of left the Russian history behind and became a diplomatic historian. Okay. And then I took time off and taught high school because I like by the time I was done with my master's, you know, I was like 25 and <laughs> super burnt out and went to, came to Houston and, t- and taught high school for three years. And then by the time I had got into my the, the, the full swing of my second year, I really wanted to go back and get the PhD, enrolled in the University of Houston and originally thought I was going to be a diplomatic historian. Mm-hmm. But then I just felt this like pull towards political history. Most of the stuff that I was really interested in studying was actually politics as opposed to diplomacy and foreign affairs. And I think what ultimately drove me to studies of like more like radicalism is that I've always been interested in just radical ideologies. You know, mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I did a, you know, I'm sure it was a terrible project, but it was on <laughs> Che Guevara, you know, and and the Cuban revolutionaries, right? Just for example, um, and I, so I've always been drawn to kind of like radical ideas, people that are a little bit on the outlier mm-hmm. the, uh, of society. And when I was talking to my advisor, you know, she was like, well, I'm not really interested in doing necessarily a, a study of left-wing radicalism. But, you know, I remember talking to my thesis advisor, a wonderful man named Justin Hart up at Texas Tech. And I remember using the word radicalism and then basically linking radicalism with the left. Right. And he stopped me and he was like, he was like, well, hold on. He's like, there's also radicalism on the right. And I was, and it just like, and I don't know why I had never, you know, I had always just associated radicals with the left and then the right was just like, you know, normal or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know, you're right. And so I, you know, started thinking more deeply about that. And that's what really got me into studies of conservatism was, was after that conversation. Yeah. I, I asked because I remember, you know, I grew up in Houston and my parents were very much similar to yours, at least in the terms of like Rush Limbaugh is on all the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, watching Fox news, but it wasn't until the tea party when I, I started to look at my dad and maybe it was also because I was becoming more mature as well. And you're like, wait, mm-hmm. who, who is this guy? Like mm-hmm. what, what has happened to you? Why are you so upset? Like we live in a nice suburb, right? Um, you've got really yeah. nice cars. And so what that's why I was really about? drawn to, mm-hmm. to your book. just thinking about 
the context from within which you were writing it, right? This is like this 2010, you know, in into mm-hmm. 2020, um, when the radical conservative movement is kind of coming into the fore and perhaps being more accepted by the mainstream. Well, I think a good example of this is when I was growing up in the 90s. I don't remember which election it was, but I remember at one point my dad told me that he voted for Pat Buchanan. Um, I'm assuming in a primary. I don't think he voted for him as a member of the Reform Party in like mm-hmm. 96 or whatever it was. But as a young kid, I just... I didn't know any better. I didn't know who Pat Buchanan was or what he stood for, you know, as like a 12 year old kid. Right. Um, But as an older person, I'm able to look back at that and then see the line connecting Pat Buchanan to someone like Donald Trump. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the light turns on in the, in the attic, you know, and you're just like, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. uh, My dad was a Ross Perot guy uh, Mm -hmm. in, in, in 92. And I'm sure there's some connection there. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'd hate to just spend the entire time talking about our families and maybe dissecting our past, (laughs) although uh, maybe we could do that offline. But um, one of the great things you do in this book is differentiate between the conservative movement in the mid 20th century and what you call the ultra conservatives that that were kind of percolating in the same era. Um, How do you define these these different ideologies? What is it about ultra conservatism that is different from from mainstream conservatism in, in the 1950s and 1960s? Absolutely. So I I think that was actually probably the biggest problem I had writing this book was definitions. Definitions Mm -hmm. are tough. You know, defining political language, political words is difficult. You know, what is a conservative? What is a liberal? What do these words mean? And and where are the boundaries, you know? And so when I was thinking of this book, I had to figure out a way to differentiate the the hard right, the the ultra conservatives, the far right, you know, the radical right, as they called them back in the 50s and 60s versus kind of this more mainstream uh, friendly face on conservatism. And the way that I view it is uh, in the introduction, I believe I lay out the idea that conservatism and really American politics should be viewed as like a spectrum, you know, and the spectrum, if you if you kind of look at only the right part of the political spectrum, so we're only looking at the kind of the conservative area, um, it's a gradient, right? Going from like kind of people who are more willing to be pragmatic, who lean towards the center, you know, and the gradient goes all the way over to extremism, right? White nationalism, you know, the, these sorts of groups. And so in, in, according to, like, to my idea, the far right is kind of a group that gets situated right in the middle of that right wing spectrum. So they're not willing to necessarily be pragmatists. They don't want to moderate their views, but they're also not going to be out there committing acts of violence to get their point across. And to me, I view this group as really the vanguard of the movement because they're the ones who are subscribing to these these magazines. They're the ones who are going out and doing the voter registration drives, right? They're the ones who are active and engaged in the conservative movement. And in some of them, I wouldn't necessarily call them intellectuals per se, because they're not, you know, the Russell Kirks or the the Frank Myers of the world. But, you know, they basically formed their own ecosystem with their own publishing houses and their own uh, organizations, and they all kind of fed into each other. And, you know, by the end of the book, I, the, the one thing that really struck me, because um, in my dissertation, each chapter was based on a, on a separate or individual group or person. And in the book, I chose to kind of weave them all together. And I think it was much more effective that way because you see the movement build over time and how there's all these these connections between these figures, right? They're not just, um, you know, paranoid uh, kooks the way that Hofstadter might, you know, depict them, but instead that, you know, they have their own sort of ideas and are willing to work with other people to, to get them across. And sometimes they don't even necessarily agree, but they acknowledge that that's an ally and they'll work with them. Yeah. I think that's one of the really great things that you did is kind of weave all of these characters together in a way that shows this connection. And as you said, sometimes they're in competing organizations, right? But they are still 
arguing for similar points and kind of tap into each other's mailing lists and the like. So I think you did a really nice job of weaving that together. And I'm glad you made that decision to do that. But um, you, you, you were mentioning they a lot. And I thought this would be a really nice time for you to maybe give give everybody an idea of, of who this vanguard was. Like who were some of the important players, the important names that are that are really bringing this movement into maturity in the 1950s and 1960s? Sure. Well, and some of the people that I write about aren't going to be household names, you know, by any stretch. Many of them are relatively obscure figures for just, you know, average people who know, you know, the average kind of American history. But some of the guys, so um, like Kent Courtney out of Louisiana was a, a Birch Society leader. He led the, the Birch Society chapter in New Orleans. He also formed his own organization called the Conservative Society of America, um, the initials of which were CSA, right? Um, which, you know, if you know the Southern history, you know what that means. Right. And it's, uh, it, he was a, a hardcore segregationist, but also tried to make himself appear respectable with his publishing house. And, and he was very careful to never, um, he tried hard to not appear to be a hard racist the way that old Southerners might have, you know, but his organization was, was kind of like the clearinghouse, a publishing clearinghouse. And the thing is, he had connections to other guys, like, for example, a guy on the West Coast named Willis uh, Stone, who ran an organization called the Liberty Amendment Committee. And his committee was in they were, the Liberty Amendment Committee was entirely focused on repealing the 16th Amendment and getting the government out of the economy entirely. No regulations, mm-hmm. you know, no taxes. And Willis Stone was very careful because he was based out of California to appear to use what we would call colorblind conservatism, right? Very little talk about race, if any, but they were allies, right? Kent Courtney and Willis Stone worked together because they saw in each other's projects a common ground of conservatism. And so even though they kind of paid attention to different ideas or focused on different issues, they were willing to work together. They shared a, uh, Kent Courtney was a Liberty Amendment uh, Committee leader in Louisiana, and Louisiana did pass the Liberty Amendment Committee or the Liberty Amendment itself. And so it's it's this cross-pollination is that I find so fascinating here. Um, you know, these guys aren't just siloed into their respected, uh, their, you know, uh, organizations. They very much work together. Yeah. You know, when I first cracked open the book, I was worried that this was just going to be about Barry Goldwater and Phyllis Schlafly. So I was really appreciative of the fact that these were people I really hadn't heard of. Um, and yet it was still this this compelling argument that that really allows or allowed me to better understand like where Barry Goldwater came from and how he was able to do the things that he did uh, in the if, 1960s. If I may build, build on that thought. I, so one of a lot of histories of conservatism used Barry Goldwater almost as a as a jumping off point for explaining Reagan. It's right. right. Like Goldwater got it started and then Reagan happened. Whereas to me, Goldwater was almost the culmination of the movement that I'm talking about. Right. Because these guys had been advocating, you know, I, I draw the line all the way back to the 1920s and the 1930s, the anti new deal, the, the xenophobia of the twenties, the, the first red scare, the Klan of the twenties, they all set the stage for this mid century movement. And so when Goldwater wins the nomination in 1964, it's on the backs of this movement. I mean, there are, you know, Birchers at the Republican National Convention chanting, we want Barry. You know, they're the ones who are pushing him forward. And even though Barry Goldwater fails, you know, that's why I use the title the far right vanguard, because they're, if, if Goldwater, as, as other scholars have argued, and I agree with them, if Goldwater was this pivotal moment, well, that pivotal moment happened because of the activism of the far right. 
Yeah, so you actually uh, painted a perfect segue into my next question, which is uh, this idea that that the roots to this vanguard don't just appear in the post-World War II period, but they're really uh, coming out of the, the late 19th and early 20th century, at least ideologically. And, and it really picks up steam, um, perhaps obviously, with the election of Franklin Roosevelt and, and the New Deal being ushered in during the Great Depression. And, you know, to most people, I think we look at the 1930s as this period where Roosevelt is incredibly popular, uh, the New Deal is incredibly popular, which it was in many respects, uh, but not so among certain swaths of the population. So um, who were these people in the 1930s who who opposed the New Deal and what Franklin Roosevelt was doing uh, throughout the Great Depression? And what were their concerns? Sure. So, you know, I think... I think one of the reasons why the New Deal, and, and to be clear, I'm not the first, you know, historian to argue that the New Deal was the, you know, the origin point of, of modern conservatism. Many other scholars have traced this history as well. But I think that one thing that my book offers is that the that there was this kind of radical group that opposed Roosevelt on a number of fronts. Many of some of it was industrialist businessmen who felt like the New Deal was going too far to curtail the rights of businesses or to strengthen unions. Some of it was racists who believed that New Deal programs would benefit African-American workers or uh, Mexican-American farm laborers, you know, and so they were worried about that. And so there was a whole host of people who, some people, it was just fear of big government, right? The, the fear of this tyrannical government growing too large and unwieldy, and it was going to take over. And inevitably, you know, you start hearing these accusations of communism and socialism and even fascism. And so some of the leaders of this group were guys like James Reed. James Reed was a uh, a Missouri senator for many years. Uh, and then he was notably, um, probably his, his biggest claim to fame was when Woodrow Wilson was trying to pass the League of Nations. And James Reed, a fellow Democrat, Wilson being a Democrat, James Reed l- led the opposition against the League of Nations in some pretty racist overtones, arguing that the League of Nations would empower, you know, um, these, ba- these barbaric other countries, mostly talking about African countries. And James Reed, after his uh, tenure as a senator, goes back and kind of goes into private law. But when Roosevelt comes to power, Reed feels compelled to do something about it. He thinks that Roosevelt is sullying the good name of the old Democratic Party. And he was very much saw himself in turn in, in, in an old Democrat in the Jeffersonian old agrarian form of Democrat. And so he forms an organization called the Jeffersonian Democrats and basically gets a whole bunch of other people to join him, some of which are industrialists, some of which are Southern segregationists. Guys like J. Evitz Haley, the Texas uh, cattleman, is a leader of the Texas Jeffersonians. Um, he plays a big role in my book, kind of uh, interspersed throughout. And these guys basically just thought that Roosevelt was the worst, you know, that he was he was going to tear down America, you know, limb from limb, essentially. And what's it, what I find interesting about the groups that are fighting against Roosevelt is that they are laying the foundation for people like Goldwater. Even Goldwater himself cites the New Deal as this origin story of this anger towards the government. And this anti-statism becomes this driving factor for conservatism. And it's because anti-statism is broad, right? It can be against civil rights. It can be against taxation. It provides kind of like a very broad palette for conservatism to kind of like cling to. So how well organized were these critiques of, of this kind of emerging and growing liberal state in the 1930s? Um, because, you know, as I said, Roosevelt's terribly popular. You know, he's winning you know, four elections. Um, so was this just kind of people spouting off these critiques and hoping someone would listen? I mean, you mentioned the Jeffersonian Democrats. So is this is this kind of the main thrust of, of the organizational effort? 
Well, there's other groups like the American Liberty League that was led by industrialists. You know, it was uh, like the DuPonts and and others who kind of formed this this group that is entirely a business group that is opposed to Roosevelt. And they don't like the idea of the government's, you know, interventions, the regulations, you know, the empowering of labor unions. And so they also, you know, are kind of agitating against Roosevelt. They work with the Jeffersonians a little bit and ultimately they all come together and they don't form a third party because they weren't really interested in that. They didn't view that as the best vehicle for defeating Roosevelt. They knew Roosevelt was popular. They knew a third party wasn't going to be the way. And so instead, they they combined forces to support the GOP's candidate, um, Alfred Landon, um, and the, the Kansas governor. And it's not successful in 1936. Like Landon loses in a huge landslide, right. uh, indicating that Roosevelt and the New Deal were incredibly popular. And so in terms of how... One of the interesting things about my book is that it's a book about losers in a lot of ways. Like these guys don't win elections. They just don't, you know, they lose a lot. But the thing is that every step of the way, they like their, their networks tighten a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's, I think the core of the story is that even though the book is much about people losing, it's also about what happens when they lose. Because every time there's a new election, they get together, they talk, they hold rallies, they hold conferences, they publish, and they meet new people who have like-minded ideas and so, and so the network grows and grows, right? The Jeffersonian Democrats are very short-lived. I, they, they break apart fully in 1944, I believe, 1940, 1944. And James, James Reed dies in 1944. So some of the old guard are gone. But what happens is that those guys that kind of cut their teeth in the Jeffersonians, like J. Evans Haley, for example, are going to move on into other groups, you know, that, that will be influential in the future. And so it kind of, it kind of like set the stage for, uh, people to advocate for conservatism in the in the Cold War era, so to speak. Yeah, you know, when you said this is really a book about losers, um, <laughs> I found that really insightful because you're right. Uh, 1936. Whenever I'm teaching this this in my class, I say, you know, uh, Roosevelt was incredibly popular, and look at this landslide victory. And then when you look at Goldwater in the '64, you say, well, Johnson, like, uh, you know, killed him. In, mm-hmm. in the electoral sphere, but the ultra conservatives still see small victories Say, well, hey, at least, you know, 25 million people voted for our person. So there's something there. And then they kind of get back to the work of forming these organizations mm-hmm. um, and bringing more people into the fold, which I think uh, is is really telling about just how focused um, mm-hmm. many of these ultra conservatives were on this this kind of long term strategy of like, hey, eventually our message is going to get out. And, and when it seems like the liberal state is failing in the late 1960s and in the 1970s, they're they're just there to go ahead and pounce. Um, and this, this may be something you're going to talk. You you might ask me in a minute, but one of the you brought it to mind just now that one of the big kind of fractures within the far right was the it was strategic. It was whether or not to try to take over a major party or whether to form their a third party, like a conservative party. And ultimately, the the group that want to take over a major party are going to be the ones that went out. Right, mm-hmm. the the third party guys eventually kind of you know, disappear, or at least many of them just join up with the major party idea, you know, but, but for a long time, the idea was that, well, the Republicans are too liberal. The Democrats are obviously way too liberal. They're basically communists. So they do form third parties, you know, like the Dixiecrats in 1948 is a good example of an ultra conservative party bent around a very specific issue. Mm-hmm. In 1956, T. Coleman Andrews basically forms his own third party just entirely around the idea of getting rid of the taxes. Um, despite the fact that he had worked for the IRS, or, you know, he was the country's <laughs> leading tax man literally a year or two earlier, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it, 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 I, I find that strategic 
argument just as interesting as well. You know, how, like, how best should we make our influence known? You know, and ultimately they decide to try to take over the GOP. So what was it about the Republican Party that these ultra conservatives felt like that was the place they had the best chance to, mm-hmm. to kind of take the party over? Because, you know, if I was just kind of thinking back on the past, I'd say, well, the Democrats had a strong contingent of these conservatives from the South. Uh, mm-hmm. Why not try and take over the Democratic Party? Was it just too far gone with mm-hmm. FDR? And so they thought the only other viable option is the Republican Party? No, that's a really interesting question because you know, the New Deal is popular in the South. Like Franklin Roosevelt is popular down there, despite the fact that he's a Northern, you know, billionaire, essentially, a net, you know, a, a Yankee, right, from New York. Uh, but these, so th- their mindset in the mid-century was that the Democratic Party had entirely bent towards liberalism. Even the, even Southern Democrats, w- if they weren't New Dealers, weren't going to be popular. I mean, George Wallace, you know, cuts his teeth as a New Deal Democrat. Lyndon Johnson, right? Right, Lyndon Johnson, New Deal Democrat, still a segregationist back in the day, right? Because he had to be, but he was also a New Dealer. And so many of these guys who are hard right and not willing to, to kind of align themselves with that New Deal coalition view the the democratic party as it stands as kind of tarnished as subverted by some communistic force. Right. And so they kind of turn away from the Democrats and the GOP, while the GOP had a lot of liberals like Nelson Rockefeller, the GOP also had an old history of the old guard guys like Robert Taft, or even back further, Calvin Coolidge Harding, Mm -hmm. you know, and they would draw from that history, right? The old, like the old guard of the Republican party, the pro business, you know, low regulations, um, kind of uh, protectionist economic policies. And that's what I think they, that linked them to the, to the Republican party, the, the isolationist mindset. It also plays a role here. And so I think by the time you get to the 1950s and sixties, they just viewed the Republican party as having the, the, the soil was more fertile than it was for the Democrats, you know, because by the fifties and sixties, the Southern Democrats are hanging on for dear life in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we spent a lot of time talking about the New Deal period, but actually the bulk of your book uh, focuses on the post-World War II period. Um, and I love the titles to each of your chapters. And and the title, The Cauldron, is really where you begin to look at the effect of the Cold War on this ultra-conservative movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it about this Cold War period that really galvanized this movement and kind of brought it together uh, in ways that they just weren't able to do in, in the 1930s and 1940s? That's a great question. And I, and, and I think the easiest way to the, the, the easy answer is anti-communism. You know, the these far rightists had been accusing Roosevelt of being a communist. They had accused the New Deal of harboring communists and they had used that phrasing over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden in the New Deal, the or I'm sorry, all of a sudden in the Cold War, anti-communism is legitimized. Right. The co- communism becomes the big enemy for the entire nation and everybody bends to anti-communism, including people like Truman instituting loyalty programs and whatnot. So this anti-communism that these guys have been putting forth kind of gets a boost and it, it not only hurts the left, but it really, I think, uh, galvanizes the right by giving them something to talk about, something to organize around. And that to me, like George Nash argues in his uh, his book on the conservative intellectual tradition, that anti-communism is kind of like the gel that held all these different groups, these different strands of conservatism together. And I do think that there's some validity to that because this Cold War era made communism the the big bad enemy, and so nobody wanted to appear to be even close to it. And so liberalism is going to swing to the right, and everybody is going to follow suit. And so. 
these these conservatives who I think in the 30s were viewed as, you know, like kooks and crazies, uh, guys that, you know, no one would listen to, couldn't win elections. All of a sudden, some of the stuff they're saying has purchase in this Cold War era. So in addition to, to the Cold War, you also point to the civil rights movement as being this this other really kind of massive national thing that, that also galvanizes uh, the ultra-conservative movement. So, I mean, maybe the answer is kind of obvious, but just for our listeners, what is it about, about the civil rights movement that also kind of allows this ultra-conservative movement to grow and its arguments to become more, more mainstream? Yeah, so I mean, the, the civil rights movement, of course, the, the fight for racial equality is pushing back against something that the far right very much cared about, which was white supremacy. And uh, to be blunt, the, the many of the people that I study were open white supremacists. Some of them coded their language a lot better than others, you know, but their main goal was to kind of establish and maintain white hegemony in America. They viewed America as a as a nation for white people. And like that doesn't mean that other that other types of people couldn't live there, but that white people should dominate. Sure. And when the civil rights movement starts to kind of erode that edifice of white supremacy, you know, they, there's a serious pushback from the South in many ways, right? We talked about the Dixiecrats in 48 already, but, uh, you know, there are other movements in the South, you know, not only the Klan uh, reemerging during the civil rights era, but of course the, the citizens councils, you know, and, and not to mention the violence that is going to happen towards civil rights activists as they kind of move into the South, trying to register voters, trying to ride buses, you know, trying to attend college. And and so, yeah, absolutely. I think that civil rights is is kind of another strand, another pillar that that holds up the the far right movement because they're they believe that they are besieged. Right. The far right look at themselves as the victims in many ways, right, that they're they're the victims of big government on one hand with the liberals and, and the New Deal. And then on the other hand, these civil rights activists who are kind of maybe working in tandem with that big government are also trying to erode the traditions of the South. And so they view themselves as having to defend something, even guys who are from the North, like, well, Robert Welch was technically born in the South and he very much carried that Southern kind of patrician mentality. You know, but even guys who lived up in like Massachusetts argued in favor of, you know, a white dominance, particularly in the South. William Buckley himself in 1957 very much said that white people should dominate the South because I, I believe he called white people the advanced race. Those are his words, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I think that says a lot about what the conservative movement was all about. How does that message resonate, though, outside of the South? Um, you know, OK, it makes sense. You've got some ultra conservatives in the South who are opposed to civil rights. Um, they're upset. But how does that play in California? And as you brought up in places like Massachusetts, uh, are they comfortable with with kind of the coalition that is forming on 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 the conservative side that is maybe, um, you know, in opposition to big government generally, but but also kind of piled up with these mm -hmm. these anti civil rights people? Well, I think a couple of things happened. You know, Goldwater himself was not a staunch like segregationist or a huge, you know, open racist in the way that certain Southern politicians were like the George Wallace, you know, segregation now, segregation forever type thing. But he still very he voted against the Civil Rights Acts. He, he was not in favor of the government helping, you know, um, black Americans get ahead. You know, and he very much couched it as like personal independence and liberty versus kind of segregation. Even Willis Stone, who I mentioned earlier, who led that Liberty Amendment Committee, his idea. So we, I, I actually did, wrote an article on his. Uh, he had a, a magazine called American Progress, which is a hilarious name for a conservative <laughs> magazine. But he in this in this uh, this magazine, I went through and tallied the number of times that the word civil rights appeared in um the magazine and it literally only appeared once. Mm -hmm. And the one time it appeared wasn't even about civil rights. The title was how about the civil right to just have to, to spend your own money. 
he made it a taxation argument. Yeah. Right. He turned civil rights on its head and it was like, oh, well, we're the victims because the government's taking our money. And so it's it, in a way in the 1950s and 60s when the hardcore violence and segregationism that would have worked in the 20s and 30s is no longer allowed or it's like losing favor for various reasons, whether that's television or, you know, changing senses of morality. Southerners and other people start to kind of code their uh, their racism or their defenses of white supremacy in various ways. But it's, it takes a long time. Even into the 1960s, the Democratic Party of Alabama was literally one of its platforms was a defense of white supremacy. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's still, it's not like they just discarded it. It took years, you know, for right. this transition to happen. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking of the, like, I'm not a racist. I just don't think the federal government should be involving itself in, in state governance or something like that as kind of a way for them to avoid that sticky question of, of do you support or oppose the civil rights? Well, and ultimately, you know? the you know, the, the, the linchpin, I think, here is the, is the Lee Atwater quote, right? The very famous Lee Atwater quote in the 1980s, where he basically admits that, yeah, like the, the fight against busing and the fight against taxation is all really a, a proxy for anti-Black policy. Okay, so you brought this up a couple of times, and and I'd like to, to spend a little bit of time delving into it. Uh, the Dixiecrat Revolt of 1948, mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, this brings together some of the these two big eras of, of the Cold War, uh, but also the civil rights struggle, the early civil rights struggle in the post-World War II period. Uh, so what, what was this Dixiecrat Revolt, and why is it so significant? Yeah, so the Dixiecrats were... Let me go back just four more years to 1944, because in Texas, there was actually a similar movement led by a group of Democrats called the Texas Regulars, where they tried to kick FDR off of the Democratic ticket in Texas and run their own guy. It ultimately fails. But then four years later, this movement to kind of remove or at least oppose Roosevelt, not through like by not by supporting the Republicans as the Jeffersonian Democrats had done, but by forming their own third party has now gained some, some real steam. And so in 1948, uh, you know, Hubert Humphrey, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Harry Truman goes in front of, you know, Congress and is, and basically takes a stand on civil rights and the South is, you know, basically like we're out of here. Uh, I, I believe it was Mississippi and Alabama delegates get up and storm out of the convention and form their own party, the state's rights, democratic party. And, you know, their whole platform was that they were a, they were a that they were the old Democrats, right? Roosevelt represented this new kind of perverted version of democ- of the Democratic Party, whereas we are the Democrats of old. You know, and I think they very much uh, took their cues from you know the old Democrats of the late nineteenth century, the Redeemers, right? They almost saw themselves as Redeemer Democrats, kind of redeeming their own party, and. You know, they pulled a lot of support from the South. They actually were able to kick Harry Truman off of the presidential ticket, I believe, in four states. And they won those four states um, and got electoral votes from those four states. And what this showed to me, you know, kind of the moral of the story for the Dixiecrats is it shows how far Southerners were willing to go, not only to defend white supremacy, but to advance the conservative cause, even if it meant sure defeat for their cause, right? That this was, they were not going to win. I don't think anybody had any illusions that the, the, the Dixiecrats thought about winning, really. I think it was more about sending a message and potentially trying to give people the choice to vote for something that wasn't FDR in the election, right? Because when they replaced FDR, the Dixiecrats won. But many people still voted straight ticket Democrat in the South just because that was the tradition. They, they you know, the, the Republican Party was the party of the North still at that, in that era. 
And so this wouldn't be the last time that that a third party arose. Um, and we'll get to the Wallace campaign uh, a little bit later in the 1960s. But um, you you brought this up earlier where there's there's a section of the ultra conservative movement that believes working through the Republican Party is the best approach. And then another section thinks forming a third party is the best approach. Uh, what other third party efforts were were attempted um, besides the Wallace campaign in in the 1960s? And were any of them ever close to to becoming um, a viable party? No, definitely not. I, in 1956, <laughs> a story of losers, right? Yeah, indeed. In 1956, T. Coleman Andrews ran this this super small campaign, but it actually ends up being a really influential one. Nicole Hemmer, a fantastic scholar, has has written on this a bit as well, and how basically T. Coleman Andrews was the 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 tax man under uh, the head of the IRS, I think, under uh, Eisenhower for like two or three years, and then he quits. And basically, right when he quits, he writes a scathing uh, denunciation of the IRS and the government in general in the Washington Post. And it gains all this traction along the right. And then he gets put forth as this candidate for this party. Now, it, like calling it as a calling it a party is a bit much. It's really just like a loose collection of groups that are kind of cobbling together a coalition. Like there was the Constitution Party in mm-hmm. Texas. There was like a, you know, a different type of party in Illinois. And they all basically came together and said, we're this is the guy that we're going to vote for. Ultimately, he only gets, you know, a little bit north of 100,000 votes. And so it's basically like a nothing but the importance of this movement is that it introduces a lot of characters to one another, like Kent Courtney, for example, the guy that runs the Conservative Society of America. That's his first real big third party movement. And Courtney was always the type of guy who wanted to create a third party. He didn't trust either of the two major parties and thought that the only way to ensure conservative purity, which was something they were real big on, was to form a third party of just purists, right? Zealots. And so that was his first attempt. And for the rest of his life, he's going to be dedicated to that cause, to forming a third party, even when other far right people like Jay Evans Haley have abandoned that idea and have kind of swung over into the Reagan Republican side. He's still in the 70s, runs as a third party candidate in, in Louisiana for like municipal positions, loses right. always, right? Never wins. <laughs> yeah. And so... Um... You keep bringing up some of these organizations that perhaps people aren't that well versed in, uh, but I think there's one that maybe people have heard of, and that's the John Birch Society. So again, we're yeah. talking in this post-war period, the 1950s, it's the Cold War, the beginning of the civil rights movement that comes after World War II. You've got the Dixiecrat Revolt, and then insert the John Birch Society. What what was the John Birch Society, and why was it so influential to this ultra-conservative movement? So the John Birch Society was the biggest far-right group of the era. Um, and to, to understand them, I think it's worth understanding their leader, whose name was Robert Welch. Um, my friend uh, Ted Miller just wrote a biography of Robert Welch, actually, which is which is quite good. Um, but Robert Welch was a... He was born in the South, I believe, North Carolina, and raised in a family that was wealthy. His family owned land. And because his family owned land and was wealthy, they basically could pay for laborers to work the land. And so he didn't have to do any work in the way that a normal working class farming family might. So he was able to go to school. He graduates from college at a super young age. He was basically a a genius, according to the people of the time. He graduated from UNC at like 16 or something. And he originally goes into the confectionery business, making candy, makes some very famous Candy bars, probably the most famous one that's still around today is the sugar daddy. Um, (laughs) He actually invented that. 
And also, I, there was another Junior Mints, I think. Yeah. I, he invented a whole number of them. But anyway, he oh, was kind of I a like fa- Junior Mints. I'm guessing I'm going to have to change that it's up a, a little It's bit. a shame. You're going to have to cancel those. <laughs> the, but it's, but the, it's, it, he's actually a failed businessman. His first business venture goes under. And then he go, his brother was also a, a candy magnate, weirdly. <laughs> and so he goes and starts working for his brother's company. They kind of have a weird falling out. I don't really know the details of that. But by 1956... Welch has kind of moved on from businesses and started entering political activism. And he's convinced that the people who are running the country, including Dwight Eisenhower, are communists. If they're not communist, they're they're duped. They're under the under the spell of communism. Right. right? And so he would often refer to like Eisenhower being like, oh, well, if he wasn't a communist, he's got communist handlers. Right. He's under (laughs) the he's under the umbrella. And he ends up writing this book called The Politician. He starts it in the early '50s. Starts writing it, and and it's a it's a huge, thick book that's just full of insane accusations. It's like 400 pages of him detailing all the ways that communism has infiltrated America. And so Welch then, by the late 1950s, has 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 decided that the far right needs a central organizational movement or a a, a tip of the spear, so to speak. And so he gets a bunch of guys together. Uh, there's 11 of them. He invites them to his home in Indianapolis and forms the John Birch Society. The fr- he, it's a two-day meeting, and I can only imagine the first day was basically him just talking to them for hours, you know, just like a preacher, I would right. assume. And then at the end of the meeting on the second day, they form the John Birch Society. Nine of the dudes sign up to be uh, on the National Council. I think only one person didn't join the John Birch Society. But anyway, and so then from there, uh, Robert Welch enlists a lot of his fellow industrialists to kind of get involved in this movement because he himself was a member of the National Association of Manufacturers, one of the most powerful lobby groups in America, and and one of the wealthiest as well. And so he enlists all these people to 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 buy in uh, to the movement. Fred Koch included, right? The, uh, the the father of the Koch brothers was an original member of the John Birch Society, and so they have a lot of money and heft behind them. And eventually, the John Birch Society spreads from Belmont, Massachusetts, where the headquarters was eventually located. Throughout the rest of the country, there were Birch chapters in every state. Um, it was very, very powerful in the South. Birch chapters, you know, were in every major city in the South, and in, in some cases in small towns. California had a ton of Birch chapters, uh, and so, you know, the Birch Society became very well known as kind of a conspiratorial outfit, a, the type of organization that really uh, portrayed America as aggrieved and beset and besieged by communism Mm -hmm. or by allies, fellow travelers. And what's weird about Welch, and we haven't really talked about religion very much yet, um, but Welch did have a religious background. He was a a religious man. And although he he did not promote the Birch Society as a particularly religious organization, there was always this underpinning of like Christian nationalism involved. And I mean, the very name of the society, John Birch, was a Christian missionary who went to China and was killed and Welch argued that John Birch was the first uh, victim of the Cold War, that he was the first casualty of the Cold War. So he named his organization after this, you know, uh, deceased and murdered missionary, mm-hmm. which I think says a lot about Welch as a person and the organization. And yeah, so they go on to become easily the most famous far right group. At one point, estimates up to about 100,000 members. Welch wanted to grow it to about a million, but there was always kind of a, a cap on exactly how far radicalism will get you, I think. What was it about this group that made them so effective? 
um, you know, you talked about a number of other groups that were smaller, less well known. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like many people have heard of the John Birch Society, mm-hmm. even if they aren't familiar with, you know, conservative politics of the 1950s. So what was it about this group that made them so effective? They just got things done. You know, the Birch Society was the group that if you needed people to show up somewhere to canvas for votes, you know, to to get people to put their names on signature ballots, you know, like they would do it. They were mm-hmm. the guys out in the field doing the hard work of leading the conservative movement. Now, Welch, of course, isn't out there asking for people to sign right. things, but he, he was more giving speeches and attending conferences. But the Birch Society had this vast network of chapters and each chapter would kind of like con- canvas its local area. And so, for example, in Louisiana, Kent Courtney ran that Birch Society chapter in New Orleans and he would use the Birch Society as his outlet for publishing his own work. He would use uh, Birch Society activists to do things that he needed them to do. He, he even hired people from the Birch Society to go canvas and try to promote his other organization, the Conservative Society of America. And so these guys are the ones, you know, I, I refer to them in the book as the tip of the spear. And I and I use the word vanguard very purposefully because they they were that vanguard. These are mm-hmm. the guys, you know, William Buckley isn't out canvassing individual voters to, to vote for a conservative candidate. He's writing think pieces in National right. Review. The Birchers are the ones on the on the ground level. Okay, so we're going to kind of move into the 1960s, which I think most people would associate as as this like incredibly progressive period, right? The 1960s Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, uh, the Fair Housing Act, um, LBJ yeah, running on, drugs, a, on rock and roll. Yeah, you know, like drugs, all all that fun stuff. Um, but you describe this as the apex of the ultra conservative movement. Again, in that in that title uh, of, of, of the chapter that focuses on the 1960s. Um, so what was it about the 1960s? You know, you got Barry Goldwater getting his butt kicked, um, all these other progressive <laughs> things coming out. What was it about the 1960s that, that is the apex of this, this early ultra conservative movement? Yeah, you're right. The, the 60s is often seen as, yeah, the, the heady days of Lyndon Johnson liberalism, right? But the thing is that the, the far right also thought this was their moment. They had spent years building up to this moment where Goldwater is going to be the nominee because you have to think about it from their perspective. They had spent the last two decades running third party candidates, whether it was the Texas regulars, whether it was, you know, T. Coleman Andrews, whether it was the Dixiecrats. And now finally, in 1964, they feel like they have a guy who is one of them. You know, Barry Goldwater, they felt was was a true far rightist. You know, kind of they, they viewed him as kind of the the modernized Robert Taft, Robert Taft, the, the Ohio Senator that was beloved. Yeah, I think by, you've got a quote where, uh, the Republicans at the convention, um, after they hear Goldwater's acceptance speech, like, Oh God, he's going to run as Barry Goldwater. Yes. Uh, he's not going to moderate his views. No. Yeah. It's almost very Trump Trump esque, right? Where in 2016 Trump was running and people were like, Oh, well, he, you know, people always moderate after the primaries and Trump just didn't. And everybody right. was like, Oh goodness, this is different. Yeah. Goldwater was just going to be Goldwater. You know, he was a, he was an irrepressible figure and that's just how he, you know, he didn't mince words and sometimes I got him into trouble and the far right saw so much of, of their ideas wrapped up in Goldwater. You know, Goldwater had written this book in the early sixties called the conscience of a conservative where he talks about what I I love this phrase. It's such good prose. He says that the, the piling sands of absolutism are like weighing down on the people, you know, and it's just like you can just see the people being besieged by all these <laughs> by the this this overwhelming force. But in that book, he kind of lays out his thoughts about what conservatism are. And it ends up being kind of a fusionist sort of tale that it's 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 you know, that the government is responsible for all these ills. 
you know, that states' rights are, are are something that we need to advocate for. And of course, that becomes a very pivotal thing for the Southerners, right? They kind of veer mm-hmm. away from uh, the hardcore racism, right? Because Goldwater was was very careful in public not to be like super racist, but he definitely <laughs> stood for states' Just rights. Just a little racist. <laughs> well, he, but he definitely stood for states' rights. And so Southerners could say like, okay, we get That's it. My guy. You're one yeah. of us. Yeah. You know, and so... To me, Goldwater, yeah, is this is this apex moment. It's the moment where the far right finally gets their foot in the door of uh, party politics. You know, they're not they weren't leading the way in the 30s and 40s. They were having to sign on to these failing candidates like Alf Landon. Mm-hmm. And then in the 50s, they were kind of out in the wilderness. But here in 64, they're the ones driving the bus, right? They're, they're the ones booing Nelson Rockefeller to the point where he has to smile and just accept the boots. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of power that they wanted. So it's no secret. Barry Goldwater loses, uh, in, in pretty dramatic fashion. And yet after the defeat of Goldwater, you know, the ultra conservative movement would be seemingly completely discredited, right? You got your guy, it failed. It was horrible. Um, we're not going to try that ever again yet. Uh, you argue that the movement, even though it was cast into the margins for a little mm-hmm. while, actually thrived in the margins. Uh, so how, how did this, this vanguard, um, respond to the defeat of Goldwater and how exactly did they thrive even at what would seemingly be a low point for the ultra conservative movement? I think it's worth pointing out here that there were multiple groups that had tried to marginalize the margins. They had, William Buckley is probably the key figure here. You know, he, Buckley, the, the, the famous editor and writer of national review tried to, he was a, a, he was a gatekeeper. He tried to defend the boundaries of conservatism. And the way that he defined conservatism was often by kind of drawing these lines between himself and his more pragmatic comrades against the, the fringe characters of Robert Welch and the Birchers and these other guys that we've been talking about. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of overlap, right? Buckley and, you know, took money from these groups. They had a lot of the same subscribers. He went to meetings with these guys. You know, it wasn't like, they had nothing in common. They mm-hmm. very much had a lot in common, but Buckley tries to act like they were something, you know, that they were kind of this, uh, this outside group that had nothing to do with conservatism. And I think it's worth pointing out that that's, that's not true, right? That narrative and that narrative was picked up by a lot of historians that, that Buckley had managed to kind of fend off the far mm-hmm. right. And in fact, Buckley wrote numerous pieces, you know, just pillaring um, the, the, the Birchers and, and Welch himself. And, taking them to task for harming the conservative cause and harming the cause of anti-communism. But the thing is that just because Buckley's saying that doesn't make it true. Right. You know, it doesn't mean that the far right actually ceased to exist. They just accepted their lumps in 1964 and just forged right ahead. Mm-hmm. And Which so they were yes, all burst in by that point. Exactly. Like loss was nothing new, <laughs> you know, in 1964, some of them were angry, right? Kent Courtney wanted to do the third party thing again, um, which ultimately he will get his chance to do, you know, but a lot of guys took the 1964 moment as a way of saying, we've made it like we're on the national stage. Now our ideas have acceptability. Mm-hmm. And the thing is Goldwater was a pivotal moment because I can't remember if it was uh, Pat Buchanan or, or who it was. Uh, it, my, it, it escapes me, but basically said that Goldwater was what convinced them to get involved in politics because Goldwater essentially encouraged conservatives like, yeah, we've lost, but it's time to get to work. Yeah. Right? If you want conservatives to take over this party, you have to get to work. And so it was this, 
it, in this loss, it was almost like the Phoenix just rose from the ashes and the conservatism kept on. Yeah. And, and the far right, you know, is, is right there. One of the best quotes, and I know we're not at George Wallace yet, but one of the best quotes I think I ever got in any, in, in the book is they're talking to a Birch member who's canvassing for Wallace. He's up in Pennsylvania or something. And they ask him like, why are you doing that? You know, what the Birch society has been discredited or whatever. And he's like, if you want to, I can't remember the exact phrase, but he says something to the effect of, if you want to be a conservative, you're going to have to have the, the John Birch Society on your side. He's like, no one who else works in a conservative movement other than people like the Birchers. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very telling that, right. you know, those are the people going out there and on the, they're the they're canvassing, they're on the ground, they're knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get to George Wallace. Uh, this is where where the book kind of wraps up, uh, at least before you get into the epilogue. Um, so who who was George Wallace? And, and why was was he a Fitting place to kind of wrap up your examination mm-hmm. of the ultra conservative movement. Yeah, George Wallace was a. I, I think I call him a grenade thrower in the book. Yeah, maybe a, it's a, too hard to say. Hey, in like five minutes, tell us who George Wallace was. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's do your a, best. A, a verbal pugilist. You know, uh, <laughs> Wallace had grown up as a as a and got and cut his teeth in politics as a New Deal Democrat. Um, but in 1948, interestingly, when the Dixiecrats were staging their rebellion, he actually sidled up with the mainstream side of the Democratic Party to try to gain favor with the party leaders and actually does him some favors. He actually kind of gets his start in party, party politics that way. And then I'm sure listeners probably know that in the 1960s, he tries to, or no, the late 1950s, he tries to run for governor of Alabama. And the other guy uses a lot of race baiting tactics. I think it was John Patterson. I can't, I'm, I'm not hundred percent on that. Um, but Wallace takes that lesson and is basically like, Oh, okay. In order to win in the South, I have to be a huge open racist. And then basically makes that transformation and becomes the candidate and eventually governor who says, you know, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, Mm -hmm. segregation forever. Very uh, loves being the center of attention. You know, George Wallace, despite being a very uh, diminutive man, a a shorter man, commanded attention. It loved being at the center of the media circus. You know, that's why when um, the integration of Alabama happened, you know, he's like, I'm going to stand in the schoolhouse doors, you know, because he wanted to be seen as the guy who was trying to defend the South. And then in 1968, he gets pulled in to run as a third party candidate, not as a Democrat, but as a third party candidate under the, the banner of the American Party. And Dan Carter's book, uh, The Politics of Rage, is an excellent book for, for people who are interested in Wallace. And in that book, he very much talks about how Wallace got involved in this third party campaign because because the thinking was that Lyndon Johnson was just going to run again in Mm -hmm. 1968. And so people speculated that if Lyndon Johnson is going to run again, we don't want another Lyndon Johnson. We, we need something else. And so Wallace put himself out there as this alternative candidate with the American party and the people who signed up to support him are all the characters that we've been talking about, you know, uh, Willis stone, but especially Kent Courtney and the Birchers are going to be at the, and, and Welch himself are going to be at the, at the ground level of, Wallace's campaign. They play such a key role. And what I think is so fascinating about this is not just that the Birchers are supporting Wallace, but where they're supporting Wallace. The Birchers are canvassing for Wallace in places like Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. right? Pittsburgh is a Northern city, right? It's, yeah, not it's just a Southern phenomenon. Right, exactly. And it shows that, there, that there's the, in fact, many of Wallace gets a bunch of millions of votes in Northern states, illustrating that the, even though he was viewed as like a hardcore racist and a segregationist, his political style had appeal beyond just the old Confederacy. And I find Wallace to be just incredibly fascinating because not only was Wallace the type of guy who 
modified his politics in this election, right? He didn't say segregation now anymore. He was much more moderate. He moderated himself and said, you know, like freedom now type of things. But he would also go into colleges and argue with people. He would give speeches at places like Yale. Mm -hmm. And when students would yell at him, he gave it right back. Like he loved it. He loved being in the arena like that and just, and, and he gave as good as he got. Yeah. I mean, that's just the kind of guy that he was in a, in a way. Uh, I think it was Kevin Cruz who wrote a piece about this in the, in the New York times that, that Wallace was very much kind of a predecessor of, of Donald Trump. Like mm-hmm. the idea of just never admitting failure, never giving in to defeat and just always attacking. And that was Wallace's political style. So why did you decide to end the book in, in this third party effort in 1968 that he ultimately loses to Richard Nixon? Yeah, so I that's one of those what ifs that if I could go back in time and maybe do something a little bit differently, I might have gone into the 70s a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And I because I think it would have been maybe beneficial to talk a little bit more about how Reagan and that style of conservatism eventually kind of took over the Republicans because that is ultimately what brings the far right fully into the Republican party, not all right. of them, but most of them. But I ended in 68 because I kind of viewed it as this moment where there's this changing of the guard in a lot of ways. My, I'm not a big on like generational history. I think mm-hmm. that you know generational markers are often very flawed. But in this way, I do think that it is, it's notable that in the 40s, you have that Jeffersonian Democrat generation, the, the James Reeds of the world, who are very much part of an earlier era. They're from World War One and mm-hmm. the late 19th century. They got their start with, you know, James Garfield. Right. Stuff. You know, <laughs> the conservatism of that era. And then the ultra conservatives are more so like the anti-New Dealers. They get their start in the 20s and really kind of by the 60s, some of them are quite old. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, one of the uh, Willis Stone who's the leader of the Liberty Amendment Committee, in fact, had tried to give his organization to the Birchers more than once. And finally, in uh, in the late, I think it's in the early 70s, Welch finally is like, fine, you know, like, you know, we didn't want to take your 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 thing, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, we'll take it. And the reason why he wanted to give it to them wasn't because he thought it would be better run under the Birchers, but because mm-hmm. Willis Stone in a letter to Robert Welch was basically like, I'm getting old. Like, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Like, yeah. I can't constantly be traveling and rabble rousing, you know, he's like, you know, he had, he, I think he was in his late sixties at that point and just didn't think he could just keep up the, the hard activism that he'd been doing for the past 40 years. And so by the time you get to the early eighties, you know, um, Robert Welch dies in 83, it's like in the mid eighties sometime, I don't remember his exact, uh, the exact date of his death, but a lot of these guys are just getting old enough to where they're starting to hand the baton off to the next generation. And that's ultimately why I kind of ended in the the late 60s, early 70s is because you start to see that baton getting handed off. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a fitting place to say, like, these guys had their time in the sun, you know, the ultra conservatives, and they're going to hand it off to the next generation. Yeah, right? they, the, the Pat Buchanan's of the world who, who, who get their start under guys like Richard Nixon, they're going to be the ones carrying conservatism in the future. Yeah, they kind of serve their role as that tip of the spear to kind of get this conservative movement into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had a different question to to kind of wrap things up, um, but I kind of want to just do something a little different here. Um, sure. So just to be clear, you do make the connections in in the epilogue between like what comes with Reagan and mm-hmm. and the Republicans after Reagan um, and the connections to the ultra conservative movement. Uh, but I wonder what would this ultra conservative vanguard think about the Republican Party today? Would they be all on board with what's happening or would they still find uh, some some ideas or some tactics that they could critique? 
I'm sure they would have criticisms. I because I think in the very beginning of the book, I call, I say that the the far right were both acerbic critics and fellow travelers of <laughs> of kind of the, the mainstream conservative movement. Like they identified as conservatives, but they also critiqued conservatives. Um, I do think that they would have loved Donald Trump uh, for various reasons. I think they would have uh, really liked Donald Trump's protectionism or Mm -hmm. he ran as a protectionist, whether or not he actually was is kind of up for debate, but his, um, his anti-immigration policies, many of the people now that's actually a story that doesn't get wrapped much into my book because immigration was so heavily restricted during the era that I'm talking about. But after 1965, when Johnson opens up immigration you start to see the far right being like that becomes a talking point for them. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so I think they would very much be in, in Donald Trump's camp on that. I think if there was any sort of critique, they would also be very happy that uh, taxes have gone down. That signals though, the defeat of Willis Stone's idea. Stone argued for no taxation essentially, or only taxation at the state and municipal level. Mm-hmm. Um, so he never is going to get that. But the fact that taxes have gone way down is actually a victory for, you know, uh, the tax ad- activists like himself, you know, even though it didn't achieve fully what he would want to achieve. And so I think in a lot of ways, you know, the the Republican Party very much reflects a lot of the uh, ideologies of the far right um, of that time period. I think the one place that they might criticize America, or at least the place that comes to mind is maybe the uh, the interventionism abroad. Mm-hmm. I think that would be the big critique for them is that is that America is too stretched around the world. Uh, many of these guys were already very skeptical. One group that we haven't really talked about, and I won't go too deep into detail, but there was a group in the 50s called For America that grew out of the America First Committee of World War II era, which was an isolationist or at the very least a non-interventionist right. um, organization that wanted to keep America out of World War II. And so a lot of the guys who were involved in that, I think, would see some similarities to, you know, uh, even when, you know, Donald Trump, when he was running for president, said he was going to pull America out of wars and, mm-hmm. and ultimately didn't. But um, I think that they would that, I think that would be their critique. They, they, certainly they would, I think, take issue with the neocons yeah. and the, the hawkishness that they are going to represent in the 1970s. Interesting. OK, so other than better understanding where your parents were coming from uh, in your childhood, what do you hope people take away from from this book after they finish it? Oh, that's a that's a good question. One of the things that I hope people take away is that the the type of conservatism that we see today with Donald Trump, the conspiracy theories of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, the anger that exists in the in the right today, the feeling of aggrievement, the feeling of resentment. These are nothing. These are not new. Right. What's different today is that those are now the platform rather than the grassroots, I think, is the big issue. Those things have always existed in the conservative movement, but now they've been platformed and are in many ways leading the party. I think at the very end of the of the book, I say something to the effect of, you know, now the ultra conservatives are in the driver's seat, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the pragmatists and the neocons that are having to kind of they're along for the ride. Right. You know, the Buckleys of the world are no longer the um, the source of power in the in the in the conservative movement or the Republican Party. You know, if you want to look for even as recently as the 2010s. People believed that the that the power in the Republican Party and that the core of the Republican Party was the Mitt Romneys and the Paul Ryans, and but now you look at it today, and that is very far from where the the core of the movement. Even somebody who's an institutionalist like Mitch McConnell is much more radical than previous generations of, you know, conservative Republican politicians. Yeah, absolutely. When I finished reading the book, my thought was, you know. 
Donald Trump wasn't an aberration, uh, right? This is something that has been building for a very long time. And, and mm-hmm. for ultra conservatives, they would have said, yeah, we told you. We knew this mm-hmm. was going to happen. Uh, so maybe it's not just this one-off, oh man, what the heck happened in 2016? Um, but a movement we should have all been paying more attention to and kind of seen coming. Exactly. In the 1960s, you know, Richard Hofstadter famously tried to write uh, right, or in the 50s and the 60s, the Richard Hofstadter and other kind of like liberal consensus type scholars tried to write off the Birchers and other groups similar to them as, you know, these these paranoid, uh, you know, crazies that, you know, crackpots that, that really don't amount to anything. They have no real political power. And so don't really pay them any mind. And I think that that's the prize mistake. That was their prize mistake. They actually got the paranoia part right, but they got. But what they got wrong was that there was a that there was a real feeling and a real power in those in those ideologies that they were promoting, and that you know they the the, the prize mistake they made was viewing it as an aberration rather than a tradition, right? Rather than a a longstanding part of conservatism and really a central part of conservatism. Absolutely. Well, uh, the book is Far Right Vanguard, The Radical Roots of Modern Conservatism, and it's out now at the University of Pennsylvania Press website, as well as other online retailers. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. It was so much fun talking to you. Yeah, I was so glad to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, And thank you for listening to New Books in the American South.